Well, our sermon text is Psalm 47, the same as our call to worship was. And I'll invite you, if you're able to at this time, to stand for the reading of our sermon passage today. Psalm 47. Give ear to the reading of God's word. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated this morning. The Bible says that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. So let's pray and ask him to give us understanding into his word even today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we do live by every word that proceeds from your mouth, even more than we live and need the bread that we eat for our daily living to to nourish our bodies. We need your word even more than that. So we ask that you would this morning work in us by your spirit, even on this Pentecost Sunday. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, Psalm 47 is a a rather short psalm. It's a psalm of praise, a pretty simple psalm of praise to our God and to our King. Over and over in this short psalm, we are called to consider or ponder the greatness of God as our King in particular, uh, and to praise Him for His greatness and, and His power and even the acts of deliverance that God has worked of His people for His people on our behalf in the past. Uh, The psalmist reminds us that God, our Savior, is, quote, verse 2, the most high and is to be feared. You know, the old King James uh, translates that, that it sounds strange to our ears, that God is terrible. It's the idea of being, it's someone that's to be feared. It has to do with God's glory, his might. Uh, The fear of God is, the the Proverbs say, is the beginning of wisdom. That's an unpopular phrase sometimes in in our day, the fear of God, but it's every bit as necessary for us now as it ever has been. Uh, God is, verse 2 and verse 7, twice it says he's the great king over all the earth. He's not just the the king over a small strip of land in Palestine. Even back then, he was to be viewed as the king over all things. The king of God's people is the king over all things. The psalmist reminds us that God has subdued the people's Verse 3, under his people, and even nations under their feet. And verse 4, that he chose their heritage or their inheritance for them. Um, God is pictured in verse 5 as having, as a conquering king, having gone up with a shout and with the sound of a trumpet. It's a very military sounding, sounding imagery there. And in fact, his conquest extends far further than Canaan, doesn't it? He's the king of, how, what is he the king of? What does verse 7 say? He's the king of all the earth and reigns over all the nations and even says there in verse 9 that the princes of the peoples gather as the people it's kind of this this mixed image the princes of the peoples are gathered as one people 
one people, the people of the God of Abraham. And he says, for the shields of the earth belong to our God. He is highly exalted. It's a way of saying all the nations, all the kingdoms of the earth belong to whom? To Christ, to God. The shields, you know, if, if you think of a shield, a lot of times people used to uh, deal with uh, what they would call a coat of arms. It was kind of your, your, the sign of your family line or maybe a royal family. And it was, it was something you put on your shield. You knew, you knew who you were fighting if you were at war, sometimes by the coat of arms on the shield, on the front of those shields. Where here he says, the shields of the earth belong to whom? To God. To God. He is highly exalted. And what, what is our response to be? A lot of responses. Submission. If he's the king, we should seek to obey his rule. But what does the psalmist particularly tell us is our application or our response to be? What does the psalmist press upon you and upon me as our, as our response? It's praise. Praise. We are to clap our hands. Verse 1, we are to shout to God with loud songs of joy. We are to sing praises, he says over and over again, to God who is our king. Well, not only is our great God and Savior most worthy of all praise, which he certainly is, which the psalmist at least briefly demonstrates for us here, the reasons for it. Um, but if you think about it, you know, it, it, it's very often when we, when we listen to sermons, uh, we, not without reason, we, we want things to be practical. We want a practical application, you know. Sometimes we want it too much. We, we just want the, the preacher to tell us what to do and we'll go on our way with our checklist and do what, what, he, what he wants us to do from the scriptures. And Nothing wrong with application. I think every sermon should have some kind of application. With, if not, the sermon kind of just floats out there in midair and, and nothing really comes of it. But sometimes the practical, quote-unquote, application isn't what we might expect. And in Psalm 47, the practical application, so-called, is praise. That is the application of the psalm. There's more to it that you can get out of it, but that's the main thing. It's the thing the psalmist comes back to and draws our attention back to again and again and again. And praise is a lot more practical, so-called, than we might think if we give it a chance to think, if we take the time to think about it. Nehemiah 8.10, uh, he says, there, The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And it's often been said that doctrine, the things that we learn about God, doctrine should learn, should lead to, rather, to doxology. You know, if you think of the book of Romans, you know, if there were ever a, a doctrinal book in your Bible, uh, Romans is it. Romans is 16 chapters worth of Paul. Uh, it could have been much longer, you get the idea when you're reading it, of, of Paul kind of expositing the gospel, explaining in detail, the progression of, of, of doctrine uh, of the gospel, everything from our need for righteousness to God giving us the imputed righteousness of Christ in justification. He explains sanctification, both the reality and the limits of it in this life. He, he goes through uh, the, this, the security of your salvation very much in chapter 8 and really into chapters 9 through 11, that God's word has never failed. It did not fail Israel in any way, shape, or form, although we sometimes, you can see why you might be tempted to think it had. Uh, he goes through all these things, then in chapter 12, he gets to the, the application, so-called. But at the end of chapter 11, after 11 chapters full of gospel-filled doctrine, what, is, what do you find there? Doxology. 
for, for from him and through him and to him are all things. He, he gives glory to Christ right in the middle of the letter. It sounds like, you know, if we were writing it, you'd put it at the end of the letter, wouldn't you? That's how I'd do it. Now that, that belongs at the end. That's kind of the, the, the telltale sign of the end. Paul couldn't wait that long. When Paul got to the end of chapter 11 and his thoughts of the gospel, he was overwhelmed and he was overwhelmed with praise. And I think that's a good example. Paul, Paul knew the Psalms, didn't he? Paul knew the Psalms. He quoted the Psalms. He alluded to the Psalms. You get the idea. Even we're going to see from the book of Acts when he was in jail, he sang Psalms and hymns at midnight to God. So doctrine must lead to doxology. And I think one of the, one of the, the practical benefits of, of such praise is doxology really does make our duties all the, all the lighter. It makes our sufferings not seem so great. What it does is it, it kind of praise, real praise, not just entertainment kind of happy clappy stuff, but real praise puts you in your place because it puts you in your place in relation to God. When you're praising God for his greatness, when you're reminding yourself and each other of the greatness of God and his works of wonders in our salvation, then you, it puts our problems in, in perspective, doesn't it? We realize that they're, not as, they're overwhelming to us. You know, people often say, God will never give you anything, you know, that's too big for you. Nonsense. He absolutely does. But they're not, they're not too big for him. And sometimes when, we, when we're not praising him, as we ought to do, and as we have every reason to do, those problems look a lot bigger, don't they? But when you get a good view of God, a, a more biblical view of God and his glory, that doxology, that praise of the Lord, tends to make our problems be set in the right Perspective. We're going to see at least three things uh, in this psalm. Uh, quickly, we're going to see first the call to praise. The call to praise. Secondly, we're going to see the cause to praise or the cause for praise. And thirdly, I couldn't think of another C, uh, so the benefits of praise. So the call to praise, the cause for praise, and the benefits of praise. First thing we see is the call to praise. You know, in a sense, the psalm begins really with that, doesn't it? In fact, the psalm kind of starts with the application. That's not how you're supposed to preach a sermon, right? But the psalm, psalmist jumps right into it and tells us, uh, clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy. That's, that does not sound very Presbyterian, does it? It's the most un-Presbyterian sounding thing you could probably imagine, clapping our hands, shouting to God with loud songs of joy. Well, if that's the case, maybe our praise our habits of praise unto God could stand uh, a little revision. They could stand to be a little bit louder once in a while. And even clapping itself is not to be uh, forbidden. Um, we should be no less ashamed to clap and shout uh, for joy unto God than we are to do so for a football game or some other lesser thing. You know, I, I have a tendency to, to be quite animated during a game. If it's a game I care about, I'll jump off the couch. I'll yell all kinds of things, slap high fives. Uh, but then when it comes to something greater, we somehow think that that's uh, inappropriate. Not, not to say I, I wouldn't be surprised if I saw people slapping high fives during the service. I might think something was wrong or that somebody had a bet on how long the sermon was going or something. Uh, but we shouldn't be ashamed to clap and shout for joy to the Lord. It, 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 the scripture, even in Psalm 47, I think, would tell us that that is a, a, a right thing to do, you know, doing all things, what's the Presbyterian model? Do it, doing all things decently and in order. That's a scriptural notion, 1 Corinthians 14.40. Um, sometimes it seems like the unofficial Presbyterian motto 
Uh, it's the thing that, that controls everything that we do. But uh, the great Puritan Bible commentator, uh, Matthew Henry, he writes this. He cautions us against being uh, overly reserved sometimes in, in our worship. He says, such, such expressions, clapping and shouting, such expressions of pious and devout affections as to some may seem indecent and imprudent ought not to be hastily censured and condemned, much less ridiculed, because if they come from an upright heart, God will accept the strength of the affection and excuse the weakness of the expressions of it. Shouldn't be ashamed uh, to have emotions not a bad thing. It shouldn't be the goal. Everything shouldn't be controlled by emotion, but there's nothing wrong with emotion. If we have no emotion, even on our worship, I think something is probably uh, amiss. Well, toward the middle of the psalm, the psalmist uh, exhorts us again to praise the Lord. In verses 6 to 7, the psalmist writes, Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. You might notice there, over and over again, in that short span of two verses, he tells us to do the same thing. Over and over, five times in two verses, what does he say? Sing praises it's like he wants us to get the hint you know they always say repetition is is for emphasis well two times is one thing three times is one thing five times in two verses he says he says to sing praises to our god and king matthew henry again as usual is helpful here he writes we are most earnestly pressed to praise god and to sing his praises so backward are we to this duty that we have need to be urged to it by precept upon precept and line upon line so we are here in verse 6. Sing praises to God and again. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king and again. Sing praises. This intimates that it is a very necessary and excellent duty. That it is a duty we ought to be frequent and abundant in. Praising God should be our bread and butter, so to speak. It should be something that, that we resonate with. You know, I often, uh, we, we follow, as you may have noticed during the service and even in our prayer meetings and things, we tend to, to follow the ACTS method. And what is ACTS? The acronym A is adoration, C is confession, T is thanksgivings, S is, is supplication, making your request known. And I've, I don't know about you, but I've always found the A in the ACTS method of prayer to be quite difficult, which is kind of embarrassing. It should not be difficult if we've known the Lord for any length of time to have things to praise him for you know if you want the the last part supplication I've got my shopping list my you know grocery list right in my hip pocket I can start thinking of things to ask God left and right I could be there for an hour without without taking a breath practically Thanksgiving even we, if we take the time that might be a little harder we take the time to think about what God has done for us what what answers to prayer that he has given us even in the last 24 hours God has answered prayers that we have asked and we haven't I know I sometimes don't think to thank him don't even think to notice that he's answered and yet confession you know if we're honest if we take five minutes to think about what we've done and said and thought even in the last 24 hours uh, we'd have no shortage of material of things to bring before God not that he doesn't already know about them already to confess to him and to receive forgiveness and cleansing of our hearts from unrighteousness from those things but adoration might be the hardest of all and yet adoration sets the rest of them in their proper perspective if we adore God for who he is if we think about his greatness his perfections his holiness his power the things he has done for our salvation that makes confession so much easier 
It makes thanksgiving so much easier. It even makes bringing a request to God. If you think about how powerful God is, the ability he has to answer our prayers, how much easier is it to bring our request to him with confidence, knowing that he can do all things. When you think of confession, you think of Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah got a vision of God's holiness, what's the first thing he realized? His own sinfulness. That the prophet was a man of unclean lips and dwelt among a people of unclean lips. God's greatness set his own holiness, so-called, into perspective, into proper perspective. And he was able to confess and receive forgiveness. Even in that vision, when the seraphim took the burning coal from the place of sacrifice, from the altar, and touched his lips and said, your sins are atoned for. And then what happened? God says, who am I going to send? And Isaiah said, me. He went from woe is me to here I am. Here I am, send me. Only grace can do that. Only the grace of God can do that. So when we're praying, when we're praising, we should have much to praise God for. Do you find praising the Lord, whether in song or in prayer, do you find that difficult? you find that it doesn't come naturally, then let this psalm serve as a corrective to you and to me. Think about this psalm and what it says about praising the Lord. Let us never be ashamed to give praise to God as our king. Let us strive by God's grace to be a people characterized by prayer, which is difficult, but also by praise. We should strive to be a people characterized by praising God. Let's take a lesson from the Apostle Paul And Silas, remember when they were in the Philippian jail after being beaten and put into the stocks? I mean, they weren't just in jail. I mean, the jail was probably the easiest part of the whole thing, but they were in stocks. They had been beaten. In Acts 16.25, it says that Paul and Silas, while they were in jail, it says, were praying and singing hymns to God around midnight. I might have been making noise, but it probably wouldn't have been sounding like singing praying and singing hymns to God around midnight and it says and the prisoners were listening to them that gets your attention doesn't it people that were being beaten not that much earlier at midnight what are they doing they're singing God's praises now rejoicing uh, you know you think, think about that not only did God send an earthquake if you know the story they're singing hymns around midnight God sends an earthquake Their chains fall off. The doors fling open. The jailer comes in. You can read the rest of the chapter there for yourself. But what happened? That Philippian jailer came to a saving knowledge of Christ. And you have to think that that Luke, in writing the book of Acts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, would have us draw a connection from the one to the other. God used the praises of his people in some regard to lead that Philippian jailer to a saving knowledge of Christ. Evangelistic praise. Uh, just like the evangelistic message that Paul preached. Well, the second thing we want to look at is the cause for praise. If we're being told over and over again to praise God, to sing his praises, we must have ample cause to praise him. Philippians 4.4, the Apostle Paul there says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He also says it in a different spot in the same book. He says it at least three times. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, rejoicing means more than singing, but it doesn't mean less than singing. Our singing should be part of, of our rejoicing. And if, if you and I, as Paul says there, can be exhorted, think about that. When Paul says rejoice in the Lord always, what does that tell you about our, our cause, our reason for rejoicing? We must have a lot of reason to rejoice in the Lord if we can be commanded 
and exhorted to rejoice in the Lord always. And the psalmist here in this short psalm, Psalm 47, tells us something of the reason for that, that we have to praise God. Look at verses 2 to 4. He says, For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us, the nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Now think about that. What, what comfort we should get from the fact that our God and Savior is a great king, as he says, over all the earth. What does it mean to be a great king over all the earth? It means he's in charge. He's in control. He is sovereignly in control of all things. All things answer to him. All things have been made by him and for him. And he is sovereignly in charge of all things. Now, if you think about that, uh, if I could take a moment, uh, Calvinists should be marked by praise more than anyone else. If you have a, a strong grasp and view of the sovereignty of God and salvation and in all things, uh, it, it, should, it should lead us to be a people marked by praise. We have more reason, not less, than the Arminians and others who have a, a lower view of God's kingdom and sovereignty. We have more reason to praise God if we understand this psalm correctly. And not only is God in control of all things, but according to the psalmist, he's done, done great things for his people, kingly things, if I can use that, that phrase. He's done king-like things on behalf of his people. What does he say in verses 3 to 4? He speaks of God subduing peoples under us and nations under our feet and choosing our heritage for us. Now, the, the, the tense of the verbs there if depending on what your translation is, uh, this made me feel kind of uh, a little bit better about my difficulties in translating Hebrew. If you read the King James, it translates it a particular way, the, the tense of the verb. If you read the ESV, it translates it in a, in a past tense that God has done these things. He, he, what does it say? He subdued, past tense, peoples under us. The, the King James puts it, I believe, future. The NASB, New American Standard, puts it as a present tense that he subdues uh, peoples under our feet. Well, which is it? I, I don't feel so bad when I have trouble translating some of these things uh, now that I see these great translations have the same difficulties. What if I told you it was all of the above? That's cheat, right? cheating, right? It's, it's all of the above, although I would, I would lean, first and foremost, don't throw anything at me, but I would lean towards the ESV that it's primarily, first and foremost, past tense. He's looking at something God has done in the past, something particular, but that something in the past carries on to the present. If, if all you had to praise God for was something he did in the past, and that was it, I'm not sure how much comfort that gives you in the presence for the, for the present tense for what you're going through now. The application is present tense and future, but it's based upon something God has done in the past. Now, what is he referring to in verses 3 and 4? He's referring to the conquest of Canaan. That's the language that he's using there back in the book of Joshua. You know your Old Testament? You had the, the book of Joshua where, where the people crossed the Jordan, took possession of the promised land. God drove the heathen nations, the pagan nations out before them. And then what did he do? Chapters 1 through 12, it's them con conquering Canaan, really God conquering it through them. Chapters 13 to 21 of Joshua, what does he do? He divides the land up by lot to each tribe. That's what he's talking about. He subdued the peoples under us, the nations under our feet. He chose our heritage, our, our inheritance. 
Their inheritance in the land was chosen by the Lord by, by lot. And that, that conquest and inheritance wasn't just some old dusty idea from the ancient past. As important as it is, the psalmist wants us to see that there's a present relevance for us in his day and as well as in our day. You know, when you, in other words, when you read your Old Testament, I, know, I don't know about you, I have the same kind of tendency, which is a bad tendency. You know, we read the Exodus. We read the book of Joshua. And we believe it. We're, we're Bible-believing Christians, right? We, we wouldn't say, well, that didn't happen. God does. You know, we're not like the modern, you know, the modernists who would say that, you know, such miracles never happen. And the people that made all these uh, movies that have come out in recent years about the Exodus, where they try to explain the, the, the Red Sea splitting through naturalistic means. Good luck with that. Uh, it's, it's a miracle, and we shouldn't be ashamed to say it's a miracle. But sometimes we think that was then. Now, I'm not saying you should expect to see the Red Sea split again, but we sometimes act like, you know, God used to do great things, and that was back then. That was in, what we say, the Bible times. Uh, and, you know, Jesus did miracles back then, but he doesn't do much now. You know, Jesus is at the right hand of God. This is what we say sometimes in our heads. He's at the right hand of God the Father, but he's really not doing much of anything now. Well, that's, that's nonsense, isn't it? You can't understand the book of Acts that way. Jesus was very active in the book of Acts. In fact, you know, we've said sometimes we differ on how to describe the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. In a sense, it's the Acts of Christ himself through the Holy Spirit, through his church. It's all the above again. There you go. But, but it's Jesus Christ conquering the nations through his gospel, through his church, by the power of his Holy Spirit. Well, the same, the same goes true for us. We should see... The thing that the psalmist talks about, the conquest of Canaan, the dividing up of the land and the, of the inheritance as something that typifies what God even does for his people now. Now, we're not looking for a land, a plot of land as any part of God's promise for us, uh, but God is active. He is still our great king. He is still worthy of praise, and he still does great things for his people in our day as well. William Plummer writes the following. He says, The language of much of this psalm may be borrowed from the victories of the Israelites over their enemies. But surely the eye of the prophet is fixed on something greater than any carnal conquests. The great occasion of gladness of the psalm is the ascension of Messiah to heaven and the consequent spread of the gospel and reign of righteousness over the nations. In other words, the psalm, it, it chooses something in the past that was a, you know, what we think of now as maybe a smaller thing that points to a greater thing. As great as the conquest of Canaan was, and it was great, it's but a small picture of the ascension of Christ in his reigning over all things right now and making his enemies a footstool for his feet right now and gathering and defending his church right now and building his church in such a way that the gates of hell shall never help, never have any hope to prevail Against it. The conquest of Canaan is a picture of the much greater conquest of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, doing all those things even now through his church by the power of his spirit, which is fitting to talk about again as today is Pentecost Sunday. In verses 8, the psalmist says this God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Now think about, I don't know exactly who wrote this psalm or exactly what, you know, what year it was or what their circumstances were at the time they wrote it. 
But they didn't write it from heaven. They wrote it on this earth with still having enemies around them, problems besetting them, all kinds of things. And yet the psalmist says, not, pres- not future tense, some faraway date. He says, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. And he does look into the future a little bit, doesn't he? The princes of the people, the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. This is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ ruling over all the nations as his church goes forth in the power of the Holy Spirit, preaching the gospel of Christ, making disciples of what? All the nations and fulfilling God's promise to Abraham that in his seed, what does he say? All the nations shall be blessed. Genesis 22, 18. Notice notice in the psalm, it's easy to skip past it. He mentions two particular names in the psalm. Jacob whom he loves, right? He chose our heritage for us. Uh, Verse 4, Jacob, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Notice it's it's present tense. What does it say about Jacob? I mean, you could say, well, he's just talking about Israel. It's just a, a euphemism for the nation Israel, and it includes that. Jacob, whom he loves. Jacob is gone from this earth when this psalm was written as he is now. But he's alive, isn't he? Jacob, whom he loves, and then what does he say? The people of the God of Abraham. Present tense. Not the God was the God of Abraham. God is the God of Abraham. And he's, he's fulfilling his promise to Abraham from back in Genesis 22 in the psalmist day and even more so in our day as well. It calls to my mind the, the words of Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 12. Revelation 7, 9 to 12, it says, After this I looked and behold... A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. What's the result of all the nations coming to Christ? Not very Presbyterian, but loud praise from everyone. It's going to get loud in heaven. Might as well get used to it now. If, if that's not a cause for praise, I don't know what is. That, that God is going to save, Christ himself is going to save a multitude that no one can number from every place on this earth. Places that you and I look at and say, we think about this like about Ramona sometimes. You know, nothing's going to happen here. You know, there's places that go, the gospel can only do so much. It can only clean up nice, polite people that are already sort of already morally, you know, okay. No, the gospel saves all kinds of sinners. All kinds of the, of the worst hardened sinners. It saved Paul and it saved you and me. That's, that's what's going to happen. That's not pie in the sky. That is, that is a prophecy of what is sure to take place. And we should act accordingly in evangelism. We should praise God for what he is, has done, what he is doing, and what he is going to do. Well, the last thing briefly we'll touch on is the benefits, the benefits of praise. Not only is praise, the psalmist says, Psalm 33, 1 is fitting, befits the upright. Not only is praise fitting for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, but it does all kinds of things 
as a kind of a side benefit if you think about it this way. Not that you want to do it in a mercenary kind of, of fashion, but the, the joy of the Lord is our strength, as we've seen in Nehemiah 8.10. It makes, it makes all kinds of things different. There's all kinds of benefits that come our way from praising the Lord. Again, we've already said doctrine must lead to doxology, and doxology should make our duties lighter. It should make our sufferings much easier to bear, like Paul and Silas in that prison. And again, why is it? It lifts our eyes from ourselves. It lifts our eyes and hearts beyond even this world, beyond our problems, beyond our suffering, to the power and love of God. It lifts our eyes, as the text Robin read this morning, to the throne of grace. The throne of grace that we have access to come boldly too. It lifts our eyes beyond those things to the power and love of our God and our King who reigns over all things for our good. Also we should remember that singing praise to our God and King is it's really part, it's, it's maybe an underappreciated part but it's a part of our ministry to one another here in the church. It's not the only thing but it's an important thing. You know I, sometimes there's two extremes that you, you may find in, in various <coughs> churches. These may be true of us from time to time. I hope that they aren't. If they are, I hope they aren't for very long. We tend to do one of two things, I think. We tend to treat the singing as kind of the thing to kind of you know, get, get, it, get it done to get to the sermon. The sermon. Now, the ministry of the word is central, and it should be. This, this should not be a concert hall. But, you know, it, it shouldn't be entertainment-oriented. But singing is not the preview of the sermon. Singing is not the thing you kind of rush to get through to get to the important things like the sermon and the Lord's Supper. It's an important part of the worship of God's people. The other, the other extreme is that sometimes singing is the only thing that seems to matter. And it almost doesn't matter what is being sung as long as everyone has their toes tapping. Neither one of those are biblical praise. And neither one of those should characterize God's people. But singing praises to our God and our King is a very important part of our ministry to one another in the church. It's what Paul talks about in Colossians 3.16, about letting the word of Christ dwell among us richly. He says there, Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. But he doesn't stop there, does he? That's where we'd stop, especially Presbyterians. He says, Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We already, saw that, we already saw that Paul sang. Paul sang in prison. In fact, in other words, Paul's singing wasn't limited to the four walls of whatever church he was in. Whoever's house it happened to be. If, there was a, if he was in prison, he sang there. On a ship, he probably sang there. Don't know if he sang well, but he sang praise to God. And what he says there is, you all, we all have a ministry to one another, and part of that ministry involves our singing. Now, that singing has to be the word of Christ. It has to be biblical. We have to watch what we sing. The words that we sing matter. We should be singing psalms, and we try to do that here whenever we can do so. But not just speaking the word to one another, singing it. You know, as a pastor, I have the privilege of being a minister of, an ordained minister of the word and sacrament, and everybody doesn't get to do that uh, in the church, and I take that as a high, a high calling but you also have a role in ministering the word of God to each other and, and to me as well and to my family. And part of that involves singing God's praises. So let us learn, as our last song is going to, uh, the title of our last song puts it, 
it's fitting for this, uh, this psalm as we're going to close after the Lord's Supper. The, the title of our last hymn is Rejoice the Lord is King. That's, if I could sum up the message of Psalm 47, that's it. Rejoice, why? For the Lord is King. He's our King. He's in charge and reigning over all things. And he will make sure all of his promises come to pass. He's even now gathering and defending us, his church. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, all of your word. We thank you for psalms like this that, that are so short and to the point and remind us of the importance of praise that, that you, you have given us in just who you are and what you have done. We have more reason to praise than we can possibly begin to imagine that because of your good things that you have done, the great things that you have done for our salvation on our behalf, we have a material... To unending to praise you for we have, have more reason to praise than anyone has ever had on this earth because we live in a day when the, the, the death of Christ for our sins and his resurrection for our justification are, are in the past they are completed things that we, we are living in an age when your son is seated at your right hand even now while you're making his enemies a footstool for his feet we live in a day after Pentecost where you have poured out your Holy Spirit upon all flesh that you're your church, that Christ is working through his church even now, gathering and building his church, defending his church by the power of the gospel. We thank you for all these great privileges. We thank you even for what we have awaiting us, as we read in, in Revelation 7, that we are going to be a part of that crowd, a part of that great number that no man can count, that we're going to see it, we're going to be a part of it, we're going to be a part of that group that's shouting your praises at the top of our lungs uh, for all eternity, we ask even now that you would help us in our weakness, help us to learn to give you praise that you deserve, both on our own, with our families, and here with our church family. Make us a praying church, and make us a singing church. And we pray that if anybody does not yet know you, and does not know the, the joy of forgiveness of their sins, that you might even turn them to Christ, even today, give them the joy of sins forgiven, and give them for the first time in their lives, the real reason and cause for praising you the rest of their days and for all eternity. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.